Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You can tell how panicked Trump world is by how viciously they're attacking Cassidy Hutchinson. The lead starts right now. MAGA media, Rudy Giuliani, even former President Trump himself, all trying to discredit star witness testimony that may actually reveal crimes committed leading up to and on January 6th. Their denials of pardon requests and more. A member of the January 6th committee will join me in moments. Also ahead, more undocumented migrant deaths linked to a tractor trailer abandoned in the hot Texas sun and now word of children among the victims. Plus. Shocking new video of a powerful blast in the war that Russia started as the U.S. and allies rushed to prevent any chance of a similar fate in two other countries. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead and the fallout from the damning, stunning January 6th hearing yesterday. It is becoming more and more clear just how distressed Trump and his allies seem to be in the wake of the testimony from former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, based on how relentlessly they're attacking her. Nonetheless, the former top aide to the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is standing by her comments. Cassidy Hutchinson's lawyers telling us in a statement you're hearing about first on CNN, quote, Ms. Hutchinson stands by all of the testimony she provided yesterday under oath to the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, unquote. Now, one might note that Trump supporters disagreeing with or assailing Cassidy Hutchinson are not doing so under oath. Many, in fact, have refused to answer any questions about their involvement in the attack. Some House Republicans were privately stunned and dismayed by the news that Hutchinson brought in her bombshell testimony, specifically what she revealed about Donald Trump and those around him, with one senior House Republican who did not support the impeachment of Trump telling CNN, quote, this testimony will lead to indictments. Now, it is not clear if Attorney General Merrick Garland or the Department of Justice are actively investigating Trump or anyone in his orbit. But if Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony is to be believed, and she was quite credible, it now seems possible that the committee is zeroing in on alleging that then-President Trump and some of those around him committed crimes. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, the committee is now calling for other first-hand witnesses of Trump's behavior leading up to and on January 6th to come forward and also testify under oath. One day after a bombshell hearing featuring former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, you swear the January 6th Select Committee signaling their investigation and what they have to reveal is far from done. We have serious legal concerns if we go up to the Capitol that day. Hutchinson delivered close to two hours of damaging details of conduct by the former president and his closest advisors that could be damaging politically and open the door to legal liability. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. 
we're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. The committee wants to hear more, zeroing in on Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone, who was at the center of much of Hutchinson's testimony. Vice Chair, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney tweeting, it's time for Mr. Cipollone to testify on the record. Legal experts warning there could be risk for Cipollone, but opportunity for the committee. If I were his counsel, there's no way that he would testify. I mean, he has got enormous exposure, um, but on the other hand, he has a lot of leverage to negotiate with Congress, to negotiate with the Justice Department, uh, even for possible immunity. As more evidence is revealed, the pressure is increasing on the Department of Justice to act. Members of the committee openly saying they believe Trump committed a crime. I think the evidence we've displayed over the course of our hearings, there's no doubt in my mind uh, that he was involved in criminal activity. The committee also accusing Trump loyalists of putting pressure on potential witnesses, bordering on witness tampering. I think that that's something that should be looked at um, by our committee and, and potentially by the Department of Justice. Meanwhile, some Republicans are pushing back, questioning Hutchinson's credibility. Trump himself, clearly watching the hearing, claimed, quote, I hardly know who this person, Cassidy Hutchinson, is. But privately, Republican leaders expressed real concerns. One senior Republican member of Congress telling CNN the testimony could, quote, lead to indictments. And Trump's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, rushing to Hutchinson's defense, saying, quote, I know her. I don't think she is lying. So it's clear that the committee would like to speak with Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel, but it is not exactly clear how they plan to compel him to cooperate. At this point, they're making it a very public showing of the fact that they'd like him to do so voluntarily. The question is, do they put some legal weight behind it and formally issue him a subpoena? That could be complicated because, as White House counsel, there are some privilege issues that are involved in it. At this point, Jake, they're trying to work out those issues to find a way to get Cipollone to tell the committee what he knows. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. And I'll be talking with former acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney in the next hour of The Lead. Joining us now to discuss is a member of the January 6th Select Committee, Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria of Virginia. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So you told CNN after yesterday's hearing that there's no doubt in your mind that former President Trump was involved in criminal activity. What exact crimes do you believe he committed? Congresswoman, can you hear me? It's Jake Tapper. Can you hear me? It sounds like we're having some... We're going to take a quick break and we're going to figure out the uh, audio problem we're having with the Democratic congressman. We're going to squeeze in this quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back with our coverage of the fallout after yesterday's bombshell January 6th hearing. Joining us now to discuss member of the January 6th Select Committee, Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria of Virginia. So, Congresswoman, you told CNN after yesterday's hearing that there's no doubt in your mind that then-President Trump was involved in criminal activity uh, relating to activities uh, around January 6th. What exact crimes do you believe he committed? Well, you know, I think some of the testimony that we heard yesterday uh, when we heard uh, what uh, his own uh, attorney, Mr. Cipollini, said is, you know, if the president goes over there, uh, there's this whole list uh, of things. Uh, that he could be uh, found guilty of or, or crimes he could be involved in. And, you know, I think that we have clearly seen that he was involved in a scheme uh, to send false electors. So um, as well as, you know, the, the scheme uh, to 
stop an official proceeding of Congress, in my mind, inciting a riot. Uh, we heard a lot about uh, the details of that yesterday and his own words, you know, all throughout this, uh, you know, the stand back and stand by, it'll be wild, let's go to the Capitol, really leading uh, his followers to believe that he was his personally going to march there himself. And as we found out yesterday, he really thought he was too, um, until he was told emphatically that he wasn't. The vice chair of your committee, Liz Cheney, says the committee has evidence of potential witness tampering by folks in Trump's orbit. Um, can you directly connect any of the texts that were shown to the audience yesterday to Donald Trump or his closest allies? Um, so we have uh, these examples uh, within the committee. We're looking into it further, but I'll tell you that those are, are not the only ones. And this is not unique uh, to what we talked about yesterday, that um, we've heard from different witnesses that they've received um, these type of messages, these types of sort of warnings, um, you know, things along the lines of, uh, you know, clearly applying pressure in the sense that, you know, we know you're loyal, we know you'll do the right thing, um, which it clearly, uh, to me, is, is pressure being applied on someone. They're essentially pressuring the witness before they, they speak to the committee. So there'll be more about that um, as we continue with the investigation. Has the committee made any criminal referrals uh, to the Department of Justice about any of the issues you just talked about? These are things we're still um, investigating, collecting the facts on. And, you know, as of yet, um, the, the committee has not uh, officially made any criminal referrals. Liz Cheney has been, Congresswoman Cheney has been making uh, it very clear that she thinks the White House, former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, uh, should testify. Um, has the committee had any discussions with Cipollone or his representatives in the last 24 hours about getting him to, to formally testify? Um, we still, uh, you know, strongly encourage him to testify. Um, I am not privy to any conversations within the last 24 hours. I'd be hopeful that those are taking place. But um, as we saw yesterday, the information that he has, his proximity to the issue, to things that happened on January 6th, and, you know, the fact that in certain cases from the testimony we've heard, he stood up um, and he said the right things and, and tried to stop some of these more egregious actions. So we really do uh, need to hear from him to, to paint the full picture of the things that happened on January 6th. A Secret Service official tells CNN that it is willing to make its agents available to testify under oath. And those agents, uh, Engel and Nornado, will say that the incident Cassidy Hutchinson described having been told about by current Secret Service agent, then White House Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato, the story that Trump lunged for the steering wheel in the presidential limo and lunged at Secret Service agent Robert Engel, um, they will say that it didn't occur uh, the event. I'm not sure if they're also claiming that they didn't tell Cassidy Hutchinson uh, that the story occurred. Um, will they testify under oath in open hearing? Well, uh, first of all, I'll say Ms. Hutchinson uh, testified under oath. Um, I think she provided credible testimony uh, to the committee. And if there are others who have information about the facts that she covered, we'd like to hear from them. So we look forward to hearing their testimony under oath. Um, and as to whether that'll be in a public hearing or, or as a a different part of our investigation. Um, we look forward to receiving as much information from those Secret Service officers and, and others um, who can provide information relevant to the work that we're doing. But haven't Ornato and Engel already testified just behind closed doors? Because Congressman Raskin told me yesterday that he didn't know of any corroborating evidence. So I'm, I'm just confused about this. Were they not asked about it when they testified? 
I uh, believe their testimony happened uh, earlier, and therefore, you know, we have additional questions to ask them. So we look forward to them, and we're glad that the Secret Service has said that they're willing to, to return and speak to the committee more. But will they do so openly in open hearing? Um, you know, as, as far as which uh, parts of the testimony will be, you know, provided live in the hearings or which will be provided through different means to the public, um, I think that's yet to be determined. All right, Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning now to the still evolving landscape of, of abortion and now even contraception in the United States. Laws are changing around the country after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. The states you see here in orange have either banned or restricted abortion. The states in dark blue still uh, allow the procedure. All of this is having other impacts as well. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is in Michigan with uh, actions that its governor, Democratic Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer, is taking uh, to make sure that girls and women will still have access to whatever medical procedures they feel they need. I don't think many knew that Michigan would snap back 91 years to a law that would render this pro-choice state one of the most extreme in the country. Governor Gretchen Whitmer is on the front lines of the new abortion fight, where a temporary court order is all that's keeping Michigan from reverting to a 1931 law that made abortion a felony. No exceptions for rape, no exceptions for incest. This is how serious this moment is and how dramatic lives could be upended in Michigan. Meeting with women in the Detroit suburbs, Whitmer sounded the alarm about the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. As fallout ripples across the country, from courts to campaigns. It's suddenly a central issue in battleground governor's races in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, where Democrats say they are the last line of defense from Republican challengers and GOP-controlled legislatures, pressing for more restrictions. The most important economic decision a woman makes in her lifetime is when and whether to have a child. And this court decision threatens to rip that away from every woman in the country. And it's going to be up to governors. And that's why this fight's so important. Tudor Dixon, Michigan mom on a mission. Tudor Dixon is the leading Republican candidate for governor, strongly opposed to abortion rights. On both sides, it energizes people. Certainly you have the pro-life people that feel like this was a win. And then you have the pro-choice people who want to see something different. Hi, have you signed the reproductive rights ballot initiative petition yet? Abortion rights supporters are collecting signatures to put the issue on the November ballot, a movement underway for months that is catching new fire in the wake of the court's ruling. Friday, all hell broke loose. You know, people saying, what can I do to help? We are getting a lot of people who aren't necessarily Democrats coming to sign because they just think it's wrong. John Murray, a small business owner of a baby and children's store, said he will sign the petition because it's an issue for men as well. If you have a daughter, if you're married, if you uh, have a sister, if you, you have a mother, right? Like, if you don't feel like if my, my wife feels like I'm less of a human right now than you are, she's like, you have more rights than I do right now. A proposed constitutional amendment in Michigan is seen by the ACLU as a test run for other states navigating the post-Roe world. This will serve as a model for other sort of similarly situated states. It really will sort of be a beacon uh, in the midst of a really difficult time for uh, reproductive rights supporters. That is exactly why opponents of abortion rights vow to fight the ballot initiative, 
in hopes of stopping it in Michigan. We will either have a ban on abortion that protects human life, or we will have this anything goes abortion amendment. This is a little bit of a test to see what they could do in other states. Now, for all the talk about the fight for control of Congress, the Democrats trying to keep control of the House and Senate, Jake, it is these governor's races, particularly in these key battlegrounds where the front lines of the abortion fight now are playing out. And here in Michigan, there is a petition that is likely to be on November ballot that is a test case. So that certainly, Governor Whitmer believes, is going to help her in November. But there is a central question here. Is that going to overtake issues of inflation, high gas prices and other matters? She said she believes it's a top issue. She doesn't know if it will be the only issue. Jake. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Katie Watson. She's an associate professor of medical education at Northwestern University and an attorney. Katie, good to see you. One of the largest health systems in Kansas City, Missouri, is no longer offering uh, the emergency contraception pill Plan B to patients. Um, This is obviously raising concerns that the Missouri abortion ban will eventually affect access to birth control. Just to be clear... Plan B is contraception. It is not an abortifacient. Um, Do you think this is going to happen, that increasingly we're going to see contraception just removed or or banned? I do. Uh, The question is the chilling effect. Um, Some legislatures may pass statutes intended to ban or limit access to contraception. But in addition, we have to look at how these statutes play out on the ground. And in a state like Missouri, where people are scared um, and they have seen and they anticipate draconian law enforcement with any ambiguity, they're going to play it safe and hospital systems are not looking for extra liability. And so we can see more of the, expect to see more of this, uh, even if it's not intended by statute. Do you under do you understand the decision made by this healthcare provider? Because I don't. Plan B is contraception. So why would they stop offering it? Their concern is allegations that uh, Plan B can interrupt uh, fertilization or implantation, which is not the case. Um, but the fear that people uh, not uh, driven by science could try to put forward this argument. In an earlier FDA label on Plan B, it suggested that it could be an abortifacient. Uh, That label uh, will be changed soon, I believe, based on the science that's been out there for years. We're also seeing um, ballot initiatives on abortion in Kansas. Voters will vote on August 2nd on whether or not to, to keep or repeal the state's abortion protections in Michigan, as you just heard, they're trying to gather signatures to put a, a constitutional amendment uh, to protect abortion uh, on the ballot in November. Um, what do you make of that? Well, what the Supreme Court did on Friday was to declare that women aren't people protected by the U.S. Constitution. I mean, that's really what the Dobbs ruling boils down to. And so it makes perfect sense that um, People are taking it into their own hands and looking at their own state constitutions. State constitutions can give you more protections than the federal constitution. The federal constitution is a floor, not a ceiling. And so in 2019, the Kansas Supreme Court interpreted its constitution to protect abortion access and to include women. So the Kansas ballot initiative that's happening in just a month is anti-choice forces 
trying to repeal that and amend the Constitution to say abortion can be prohibited by the legislature. It's not protected. So Kansans for constitutional uh, freedom is looking for folks to vote no on that, to, uh, to allow their Supreme Court to have its voice. Michigan is the flip. The Michigan ballot initiative, and it looks like they have enough signatures to put it on for November, is to add protection for abortion access into the Michigan Constitution explicitly. Now, it's important to note that Governor Gretchen Whitmer and also Planned Parenthood have filed lawsuits making the same argument that was made in Kansas in 2019, that our Constitution already protects abortion access with the language that exists. And they've received a district court injunction saying, agreeing with them, saying they have a likelihood of success on the merits. That will be appealed up. We'll have to see what happens. A more secure alternative and response is to pass this constitutional amendment in November in Michigan. Hmm. There are also uh, questions about the security of apps that track menstrual cycles, period tracking apps. We saw in 2019 the director of the Missouri State Health Department admitted to having a a spreadsheet uh, tracking the menstrual periods of Planned Parenthood patients. This had to do with an investigation, I believe, in uh, an abortion uh, that failed. I I believe that's what it was. But the reason I raise it is because he was acting, or the the health director was looking into the menstrual cycles of Planned Parenthood patients. Are you concerned about these apps and the government tracking women's menstrual cycles to keep an eye on whether or not they're pregnant, et cetera? Absolutely. And let's just tie that back to the first topic you mentioned. Why would a hospital system in Missouri be nervous about uh, absolutely overzealous enforcement? You just provided that example. Why? Um, The question is that some of these apps store data in the cloud rather than keeping it local on the phone. That's part of a larger conversation about data privacy on smartphones, but it is suddenly so crucial for so many thousands of women in these states that are going dark. Um, So yes, I am very concerned because it could be evidence used against a woman. Let's also point out that things like Google Maps that could track your location could be, um, that data could be subpoenaed to show where you went. Um, There are apps, I believe Planned Parenthood has one that track periods um, and store the information just directly to the phone. I believe there's an app that has been developed by Ibis Reproductive Health um, where people can access medication abortion Mm -hmm. um, with data just stored to their own phone. Um, I think this generation is going to fall back in love with pen and paper and the telephone. Katie Watson, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Coming up, a tragedy getting worse in what's being called the deadliest case of human smuggling in U.S. history, at least recent U.S. history. What we just heard from a police chief, that's next. Plus, a case we've been monitoring for years here on The Lead, a Supreme Court decision today giving a major victory to an Army Reserve veteran. Stay with us. In our national lead, the death toll in the deadly human smuggling case in Texas has tragically risen to 53. On Monday, a packed, sweltering semi-truck was found abandoned on the side of the road near San Antonio on a barren stretch known locally as the Mouth of the Wolf. CNN's Rosa Flores is in San Antonio. And Rosa, you just spoke with the police chief. What did he have to say? 
you know, Jake, I'm still processing what he said. He said this was beyond tragic. And he described the scene in a way that we have not heard before. And I'm going to quote here. He said that when he saw that tractor trailer, here's what he saw. Quote, the floor of the trailer was completely covered in bodies and that at least 10 bodies were outside the trailer. Now, if you look at that video that we've been showing on this case, you'll see that there's a red tarp. That red tarp is covering the bodies that he is describing. Now, he says that when his officers first arrived on scene, they were hoping to rescue these individuals. That's why those bodies were taken out of the trailer, because these brave men and women were hoping to rescue the individuals in this trailer. But here's what he says happened next. The driver, they believe, started leaving that area where that trailer was. And so they asked for further resources. They asked for chopper backup. They used their police chopper to track this individual in a field and that that individual was detained. We don't have more information about that individual, but police officers, of course, were handling both scenes, both trying to detain the driver, the suspected driver, I should correct myself, and also trying to rescue the individuals in the trailer. But as the chief then very vividly described Jake, he said it was just a pile of bodies. Just awful. Jake. Rosa Flores in San Antonio, thanks so much. Staying in Texas, today four teachers from Robb Elementary School, the mayor of Uvalde, and several police officers testified behind closed doors in front of the Texas House Investigative Committee looking into the worst elementary school shooting in this country since Sandy Hook in 2012. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of, De- of Texas, who represents the sites of both of these tragedies uh, for your congressional district. Unbelievable. Um, I guess let's start with uh, this closed-door hearing. What are you hearing about it? Yeah, no, thank you for having me, Jake. And, and look, our community is still trying to heal, and, and we're trying to get all the facts in place. And there's a lot of different investigations going on. I think what we got to do is we got to let these investigations take hold and let the facts lead us to the truth. And then once that shakes out, we got we to gotta act, and we got to make sure that we, we implement changes. And it's not only for Uvalde. It's for all the surrounding communities. Uh, Uvalde is really the big town in that area. There's a lot of surrounding communities that feed into Uvalde. So let's take a listen to the mayor of Uvalde, Don McLaughlin, right after his testimony today. I have yet to be briefed by any, anybody from any agency on what went on, which I think is wrong. I think there is a real concern that the public and most importantly, the family members who lost their children uh, in this horrible tragedy or their, or their mothers or wives um, will never actually find out what happened because there's been it looks like a cover up. There's been all these different misinformation out there. You got a lot of folks that are worried about the politics in it. We got to look beyond that. Right. I talk to I speak with uh, Mayor McLaughlin almost daily. Uh, as well as the county judge, who's a Democrat, we talk daily on to go, how do we heal and get through, you know, how do we get our community a whole again? And look, a lot of people don't realize we're getting ready for school. It's 60 days away. And our teachers, our superintendents, we're trying to get ready for school. The chaos hasn't stopped. On Thursday of last week, there was a high-speed chase that came through town. While these teachers were in school, they got an alert to, to hunker in place. Mm-hmm. And they had to re- revisit this terrible incident that happened a little over 30 days ago. That's where a lot of our focus is on. Um, turning back to the migrant tragedy, uh, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin told Politico it's a, quote, Uvalde moment, unquote, for immigration. Now, uh, Durbin and Republican Senator Tom Tillis are, are they're restarting long-shot immigration reform talks. Do you think that that is a potential solution to this horrible 
situation where people are being, you know, where smugglers, sure. coyotes, whatever, are sure. bringing people in and, and subjecting them to, to risks like this. Yeah, look, there's 53 people and counting uh, the number of deaths. If we don't take a notice of that, what will we take notice of? And I think it is a Uvalde moment where we should ask, all of us should sit down and go, how do we secure the border? How do we have immigration reform? How do we sit down in, in a pragmatic way and find solutions? As a lawmaker, I'm committed to doing that. Look, one of the reports that I'm hearing is there were people in that, in that uh, tr- uh, truck that escaped, that, that were able to flee, if you will, when the doors were open. What, what does that tell me? There were, there were probably a lot more people in there than just the 60 plus that were left behind. What I'm getting at is this crisis is spiraling out of control. In the House, it's been very partisan, and it's been, it's been unfortunate. The Senate has really led, I thought, right, coming together, very difficult topics. That's what we need more of. The House needs to lead, and we need to do it in a manner that is bipartisan and pragmatic. Um, on that topic, let's talk about the gun uh, safety bill that passed in the House, uh, because you were one of 14 House Republicans that voted for it. I guess it was just last week, believe it or not. No. Um, now, you're a very conservative Republican. You're a supporter of gun rights. Yes. Was that a difficult vote for you? Uh, it wasn't a difficult vote for me for one reason. I, I always looked at it as, as this. This is why I voted for that piece of legislation. It would have prevented the Uvalde shooting from occurring. Right? There was other pieces of legislation that I did not vote in favor of because I didn't believe it would have stopped the Uvalde shooting. That's one. The other piece of it, too, is there's billions of dollars in this bill that's now signed into law for mental health. That's the other aspect of it, too. We always talk about it, but we never actually do it and implement some of these things. You know, back to the San Antonio event, there's over 60 firefighters that have had to see these bodies. Guess what? They need psychiatric help. My first responders are hurting. Part of the legislation, it's the largest investment in mental health in our nation's history. This is, I think, what we can accomplish when we come together, when we put policy ahead of politics. All right. Congressman uh, Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, it's good to see you. Thank Thank you so much for being here. Coming up next to the world stage in the expanded territory Russia may be up against if Putin decides to take his war outside of Ukraine. Stay with us. In our world lead today, a potentially historic expansion of NATO, all thanks to the belligerence of NATO opponent Vladimir Putin. Sweden and Finland have been formally invited to join the defensive alliance after Turkey dropped its objections, paving the way for NATO's most consequential enlargement in decades. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, this decision comes as President Biden meets with his Turkish counterpart on the sidelines of the NATO summit. NATO leaders in Madrid dealing a massive blow to Russian President Putin after formally inviting Finland and Sweden to join the military alliance. I want to particularly thank you for uh, what you did putting together situation with regard to Finland and Sweden. Turkey had been the last remaining roadblock and President Biden sat down with Turkish President Erdogan today to thank him after he dropped his objections to their membership. So, the floor is yours. This NATO summit that we're attending in terms of its agenda is going to be quite busy and it's going to be quite important. Once ratified by all 30 countries, the move would nearly double the Western Alliance's border with Russia and expand the group to 32 members. This is a good agreement for Turkey. It is a good agreement for Finland and Sweden. And it is a good agreement for NATO. 
When President Putin invaded Ukraine four months ago, he was hoping to weaken the alliance that pledges to defend any member that's attacked, but instead has only rallied it. The NATO countries did not want to hear us, which means that in fact they had completely different plans. With Finland and Sweden racing to join NATO, Ukrainian President Zelensky asked NATO leaders today, why them and not Ukraine? NATO's open-door policy shouldn't remind us of the mechanism of the old Kyiv metro barriers. They are open, but as soon as you approach them, they are shut until you pay. Has Ukraine not paid enough? The White House also announcing today the U.S. is boosting its troop presence in Europe as Russia's invasion drags on. And you're going to see other announcements from other allies to shore up that eastern flank. Uh, and of course, now that eastern flank has gotten a lot bigger, uh, or will soon get bigger, uh, once Finland and Sweden join. Now, Jake, obviously we are here at the G7 summit in Madrid that was just happened in Germany, now the NATO summit. The G20 summit is going to happen in Indonesia in November. We should note that the president of Indonesia actually visited Kyiv today. He personally invited Ukrainian President Zelensky to attend, and we are told that he has accepted that invitation. Obviously, Jake, that's notable given we do expect Russian President Putin to also be there as well. Mm. Caitlin Collins in Madrid, thank you so much. To the buried lead, these are stories we feel deserve more attention than they're getting. Today, a huge U.S. Supreme Court victory for Army Reserve veteran Leroy Torres, a burn pit victim who won the right to sue his employer, the state of Texas. We followed his case on the show for years. Torres says he suffered debilitating lung damage from exposure to a burn pit when he served in Iraq. The military has long used burn pits to destroy items such as trash, human waste, dangerous chemical material. Torres told me last year he has struggled to get the treatment he needs. In 2018, I was diagnosed with a toxic brain injury, so it's, it's been one thing after another. Following my lung biopsy in 2010, it has been a, a, a constant uh, battle for specialized health care. Torres says he was forced to resign as a Texas state trooper because of his lung condition, and that's when his case ended up in court when he tried to sue. Torres told me this Supreme Court decision could help up to 1,000 veterans who have also had their jobs compromised because of health situations. Congratulations to Leroy and Rosie. Next here, the new actions in the U.S. to contain monkeypox as cases spread at an alarmingly high rate. Stay with us. In our health lead, U.S. officials ramping up efforts to curb the monkeypox outbreak. Part of the plan is to distribute more vaccines to the states with the highest case rates and to expand who is eligible for a shot. Let's bring in CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, the Biden administration's new strategy comes as the CDC has opened an emergency operations center to deal with monkeypox. So what's in this plan? Well, they they want to identify, first of all, where exactly this is spreading and uh, among who this is spreading uh, most most robustly. This, you know, this is the largest and sort of widest spread outbreak of monkeypox. Typically, these outbreaks have occurred in the past, but this is really uh, gaining traction. We can take a look at some of the numbers here. And even since this morning, uh, the numbers have changed. Uh, Another state now reporting cases and 45 more cases over the day. So now we're at roughly 351 
cases, confirmed cases of monkeypox in the United States in 27 states and over 5,000 around the world now in, in, in close to 50 countries. So this is obviously something that is spreading. What, this, what they're basically talking about specifically in terms of recommendations is identifying who might be uh, most benefiting from a vaccine. And what they're saying is that people who, who are living, obviously, in areas where monkeypox is circulating, if they've had a known sort of exposure to someone with monkeypox, this does appear to be uh, occurring in people who've had sexual relations with someone who's had diagnosed monkeypox, people who've had multiple sexual partners, gay men who've had multiple sexual partners, especially, again, in areas where monkeypox is circulating. So if you look at the previous states where you have the most cases, these criteria, that's likely where you're going to see vaccines start to surge. Now, one thing, Jake, uh, people think of vaccines as something you take to prevent infection, which is true. There is something also known as post-exposure prophylaxis. So even after a known exposure to reduce the magnitude or significance of the infection, you could still potentially give a vaccine. They also want to increase testing, Jake. I mean, this is going to sound familiar, but we probably don't have clear eyes on exactly how many cases are out there. So they want to get more commercial labs testing and uh, public health institutions as well. Let me uh, turn to COVID now uh, and these possible new booster shots. FDA advisors are recommending the vaccines be redesigned to target Omicron <clears throat> variants. Is that essential? And, and when can Americans expect to see these modified booster shots? Yeah, I, this is a really interesting discussion. I think it's predicated on, on two basic things. One is that I think most people anticipate that there will be a surge of cases in the fall. Weather gets cooler and drier. Respiratory viruses tend to spread more easily. That's number one. Number two is that the existing vaccines are still really protective against severe disease, but we've been talking about the waning immunity overall uh, with these new variants and subvariants. So I think that's what's really driving the thinking. There was a lot of enthusiasm. We'll see what the FDA says, but it's pretty clear that some sort of booster that is specific to an Omicron subvariant is probably what's going to be recommended by the FDA. The challenge, Jake, is this. Let me show you just what has happened with Omicron just over the past couple of weeks here in the United States. We knew, you know, the original <coughs> Omicron subvariants were, were very powerful and, and spread very quickly. Between, you know, June 12th, June 18th, you could see that the subvariants had a 37.4%. That was the percentage of cases. Now it's over half. That happened just within a week. So that gives you an idea of how much of a moving target this is. So lots of enthusiasm for an Omicron-specific booster, but these numbers will change. And there could be a new variant. And I think that they have to sort of pick a moving target in the future in terms of determining what that booster will be. Hmm. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Coming up on the lead, Trump's former acting chief of staff, why Mick Mulvaney says star witness testimony yesterday casts real doubt on Donald Trump. He'll join me next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, we're going to be joined by the mother of an American veteran who is currently being held captive by Russian-backed separatists after he was caught while helping Ukrainian fighters. She spoke with her son on the, po for, on the phone for the first time since his capture. Plus, it's become a haven for women who live in states with bans on abortion. We're going to talk to a Colorado doctor who's been performing abortions since before Roe v. Wade. He has a warning about what's happening in states like Colorado, where abortion is legal. And leading this hour, she must have struck a nerve amid attacks from MAGA loyalists. The lawyer for former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson 
issued a statement stating that Hutchinson stands by all of the testimony she gave to the January 6th Select Committee yesterday under oath. Several of Donald Trump's staunchest Republican defenders have attacked her publicly, though not under oath, we should note. Others have been publicly silent after Hutchinson's stunning testimony. In private, however, former Trump aides tell CNN that the testimony painted a picture of Trump completely unhinged and losing all control, a damning portrait. CNN's Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona starts us off this hour. And Melanie, most Republican officials are not willing to talk publicly about yesterday's hearing. Tell us what they're telling you privately. Yeah, that is exactly right. Publicly, most Republicans are trying to downplay yesterday's testimony or change the subject. But privately, it is a much different story. The GOP is really starting to recognize how serious this is for Donald Trump and his allies. And they were particularly alarmed by the fact that Trump knew the mob was armed and dangerous, and he sent them to the Capitol anyway. In fact, he tried to join them. He wanted to join them. One senior House Republican who did not support impeachment told me that they thought there would be indictments after yesterday's testimony. Another GOP lawmaker said after watching the hearing, they wanted to throw their lunch against the wall, a reference to the fact that Trump apparently threw his lunch against the wall when he was angry. And another House Republican told me that they said yesterday's hearing really proved that Trump was hell-bent on trying to be at the Capitol and was personally involved in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Now, the fact that they were only saying this on background and anonymously, I think is also really telling Jake, because it shows that Trump is still in command of this party, Republicans were afraid to speak up against him. And meanwhile, GOP leaders have been absolutely silent, even though they had quite a lot to say in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. And that includes Kevin McCarthy, the House GOP leader, who was cited yesterday in the testimony as being one of the people who was deeply concerned by the idea of Trump coming to the Capitol on January 6th. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, Donald Trump's really been taking it on the chin from conservative media after yesterday's hearing. I'm not talking about the dead enders on that other channel, but people uh, in conservative editorial boards and such. Tell us more about that. Yeah, some really tough headlines for Trump. I want to tick through a few of them from these conservative outlets. The Wall Street Journal editorial board said Republicans should not look away from the compelling evidence. The conservative Washington Examiner called Trump unfit to be anywhere near power ever again. And the New York Post had a headline declaring Trump as a tyrant. So, you know, clearly some tiny cracks starting to emerge in the areas where Trump has enjoyed traditional support, but the MAGA base still standing by Trump as of right now, Jake. Yeah, Melanie Zanona, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Aides to former President Trump tell CNN that they were left speechless by Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. Some former members of the Trump administration are weighing in publicly, including Former acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Mick Mulvaney, who writes in an op-ed for USA Today, quote, after some of the bombshells that got dropped in that hearing, my guess is that things could get very dark for the former president, unquote. And Mick Mulvaney joins us now. We should note he later served as special envoy to Northern Ireland, but he resigned from his post in the wake of the Capitol attack. Um, Mick, first of all, when you say things could get very dark for Donald Trump, what do you mean? Um, well, Jake, this really interesting revelations. Again, if you take what Cassidy Hutchinson said at face value, then Donald Trump knew that the protesters had weapons and encouraged them to go to the Capitol uh, anyway. That was stunning to me. I have been defending the president over the course of the last year, even though I quit my job over the way he conducted himself during the riot. I never really thought until yesterday that he was even capable of inciting the riot. But if he knew those weapons were there and said, they're not here for me, let's go down to the Capitol, that is problematic for the president. 
if there's a direct line from the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, right wing extremist groups into the White House, that's a problem for the president. And Cassidy Hutchinson mentions yesterday for the first time that Mark Meadows was in communication um, with those folks. And finally, if there is really witness tampering, which is, I don't think, uh, something that's not getting nearly as much uh, attention. It came very late in the hearing yesterday. Uh, but if there's really witness tampering by Trump or by someone in his inner circle, that's a serious problem. So uh, again, it was the first time we've heard a lot of this yesterday. We're starting to get some pushback, for example, from the Secret Service that maybe not all of the testimony is accurate. Um, but if you take it at face value, yeah, things could get really bad for uh, for Trump and his team very quickly. Yeah, I mean, the, just to, on the Secret Service thing, uh, the question is, she just testified what she heard from uh, Ornato, uh, not whether or not she saw it. She never said she saw it. But that is, an, you know, I take your point on that. What, what do you make of Donald Trump's complaint? He's out there saying his side of the story isn't being told in these hearings. Yeah, and it's not. And that's that's at one level, that's fair. But at the other level, you got to sort of look at him and say, OK, that's fine. Send in the people who could tell your side of the story. Let's let Mark Meadows testify or ask him to te- Trump ask him to testify. What about Peter Navarro? What about Steve Bannon? Um, at some point, I think the committee is going to ask for uh, Pat Cipollone's testimony. Um, will those folks uh, defend the president or will they corroborate what uh, what Cassidy said yesterday? My guess is many of them probably take the fifth. Um, but the, the opportunities there, look, it's not a fair hearing. It's a political hearing. I get that. But it's hard to say that your side is not getting out there. Your argument's not getting out there when you your people won't go and talk. Cassidy Hutchinson gave some uh, remarkable testimony about Chief of Staff Mark Meadows seemingly unwilling to engage. Um, what did you make of her recollection that, you know, she or Tony Ornato or Pat Bellini, people were trying to tell him things and he was sitting on his sofa, scrolling on his phone, unresponsive, especially, you know, when the Secret Service and she were trying to tell Meadows about the threat of violence? Uh, that's, I mean, that, that struck me personally. I, that's my sofa. I've used that sofa. That was my office. It was my fireplace he was sitting by, right? I understand exactly what the what the the dynamics are there and the visual image of of Cassidy coming to the to the door maybe with Pat there or Pat there a little bit afterwards and trying to talk to Mark and Mark not even looking up according to Cassidy and just staring at his phone and then they have to sort of interrupt him to make sure he's paying attention sends a very disturbing image of what the West Wing was like I was actually texting with a a colleague of mine who was in the West Wing at the time and I said look was was Mark just completely incompetent, or was he having a nervous breakdown? And the response was that it was a little bit of both. The West Wing was clearly broken, clearly broken. Uh, and the testimony yesterday actually made me feel bad for some of the good people who were still there to have to work in that environment with a chief of staff who was so obviously disengaged, again, according to what uh, Cassidy said yesterday. Very, very disturbing for me to hear that as a former chief of staff. What did you make of the, the descriptions we heard about Trump's uh, volatile temper? Um, here, here's an example from when Attorney General Bill Barr uh, said in an interview that uh, this, is, this is after Barr testified, to, um, told the AP that he'd found no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Uh, and here's uh, Cassidy's uh, recollection of that. There's ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall. Were you surprised by that? 
Uh, a little bit. Uh, I've been around Donald Trump a, a good bit. Um, I've seen a little bit of his temper. I've seen him scream. I've seen him pound on the table. I've seen a hundred people do that. Um, so I, I never saw him throw a plate. I never saw him. Uh, I think later she testified that he he pulled the tablecloth out and knocked everything off the table. I never saw that. If that's true, again, I think it bears noting here that some of what she testified there to in that clip was something she saw. She saw the stuff on the wall and the broken plate, but she heard about the other stuff. So you right. have to sort of take that with a small grain of salt. Um, but if that is really what it was like in the West Wing, if that's what Donald Trump was like, then things had changed dramatically since I had left in March um, to have a, a chief of staff who was disengaged, to have a president throwing plates. The place was clearly very different. Um, and you got a dramatically different result, I think, on January 6th um, than any of us really expected. All right, Mick Mulvaney, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Jake. Have Democrats lost voters by not protecting abortion rights at the federal level? They have had 50 years to do so. We're going to talk to a Democratic congresswoman who has publicly shared her story about getting an abortion. Then he spread Trump election lies, and now he may be the most vulnerable Republican senator come November. CNN's going to pay a visit to Senator Ron Johnson's home state. Stay with us. In our health lead, before Roe v. Wade was overturned, a pregnant woman in Nebraska who found out her fetus had severe abnormalities and that was putting her own life at risk, that woman could not find anywhere in her state to terminate the pregnancy. She and her husband had to travel to Colorado to get that procedure. But now that Roe is gone, the option to travel out of state could become more difficult for women and girls. As CNN's Lucy Kafanov reports, the number of doctors performing abortions becomes more limited even where abortion is legal. Stephanie DeWarick and her husband Dave always wanted a big family, a sibling for their daughter Harper. (laughs) Hi. So when they found out Stephanie was pregnant with a boy last summer, they were overjoyed. This is a very wanted child. We planned for this baby. But 12 weeks into the pregnancy, an ultrasound revealed an emphalocele, a birth defect where the fetus's internal organs were developing outside the body. This photo shows a defeated Stephanie the day she received the tragic news. What would that have meant for quality of life for this baby? There, There would have been none. He would not have been able to survive or come home. Stephanie was also told her own life could be in jeopardy. At 19 weeks, she and her husband made the painful choice to terminate the pregnancy. An abortion was what I needed to save my life and give my son the dignity that he deserved. I couldn't carry this baby to term and have my husband have to bury both of us. It, it just wasn't an option. Abortion was. Their home state of Nebraska allowed abortions up to 22 weeks, but they couldn't find a clinic that could schedule the procedure in time. After a desperate search across nearby states, the family settled on the Boulder Abortion Clinic in Colorado. This is Dr. Hearn. Dr. Warren Hearn has been providing abortions for nearly half a century. He's 84 years old and remembers the days before Roe versus Wade. Thousands of women died every year from unsafe, illegal abortions. I think one of the consequences of this decision is that women will die as they did before Roe versus Wade. In Colorado, abortion is legal at all stages of pregnancy. Even before the Supreme Court's ruling last week, Colorado's family planning clinics were struggling. This is sort of an abortion intensive care unit. Uh, We get patients from all over the country who can't be seen in other clinics. How do you see that impacting the surge of patients coming to Colorado? Absorb. Uh, And so it takes a long time to expand the services. You have to find the people 
who will do this and risk their lives to do it. As one of the few people in the country who performs legal abortions later in pregnancy, Dr. Hearn says he's seen his patient load increase 50 percent from a year ago. One of the things that's, that's critical to understand is that safe abortion is an essential component of women's health care in the 21st century. And that's the way it should be. And no woman's life and health should be at the mercy of the next election or her zip code. <laughs> Harper still asks about Oliver James, the name the Dwarax picked out for her would-be brother. I had to tell her that baby was too sick and that baby wasn't going to come home with us and that she, she wasn't going to get to meet her little brother. His ashes, hand and footprints enshrined on the living room shelf. We very much want another child, but what if this happens again? What if I have another high-risk pregnancy that puts my own life at risk? I do want another baby, and now I'm scared to. I was so excited at the idea of a positive pregnancy test, and now it scares me. It scares me because I might not be able to get an abortion this time. Lucy Kafanov, CNN, Boulder, Colorado. And our thanks to Lucy Kafanov for that reporting. Let's bring in Washington Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Congresswoman, uh, you shared a very personal story in a New York Times op-ed uh, of the experience of your abortion, which you say you got because you were afraid of medical complications for yourself and for the baby. You wrote, quote, it was excruciating. I wanted children, but I wasn't ready, nor was I fully recovered. It had to be my choice because in the end, I would be the one to carry the fetus in my body I would be the one to potentially face another emergency cesarean section, and I would be the one whose baby could suffer the serious, sometimes fatal consequences of extreme prematurity. I could not simply hope for the best. I had to make a decision based on the tremendous risks that had been clearly laid out for me, unquote. Um, what was it like sharing the story, and, and what was the reaction that you got? It was kind of terrifying to think about sharing it. I had not shared it with anyone, including my mother, um, for the 15 years after I'd had the abortion. And it was still very real to me, just the trauma of my first child's birth and everything I went through. Um, but I felt, Jake, that it was so important because the nuances of these stories, and just listening to the one that you just told, uh, that was just told on air, it, they are so complex. And there is no way that a blanket abortion ban and forced pregnancy can work. It, it just can't work because when we are told that our life is at risk or our baby's life is at risk or the fetus is not going to be able to be carried to term, uh, there are so many issues there. And those are just in, in situations that are, that are extremely difficult medically. But even in terms of my ability to work, my ability to determine my career's trajectory, my ability to be um, you know, of equal status to men, all of that is at risk with these abortion bans. So when I told my mother, she was shocked, you know, and, and she felt terrible that she wasn't here and that I felt the shame that I felt about my decision. But that's why it's also important for us to tell these stories, because one in four women across America has had an abortion. 60% of pregnant people who have abortions are already mothers. And so it is, it is real. It is not going to stop, Jake. Abortions are not going to stop. What is going to happen is they're going to become illegal. They're going to become unsafe. 
and people will die. Young girls will die, mothers will die, women, pregnant people will die. And it, it, it is, it is, but it's not going to stop because this is the way our reproductive systems work. And we also have roles beyond just being reproducers. We yeah. have roles in the economy. So I want to ask you a question because there's something I've been hearing uh, a lot about uh, since the, that draft uh, decision uh, leaked to Politico in April, one that turned out to be almost ex- entirely accurate. Um, and it has to do with, I, I hear from young women uh, who are coming to resent Democrats using the issue of abortion rights and preserving abortion rights uh, to, to get them to the polls. Because they say Democrats always do this, and then once they're in office, they, they don't do enough to codify Roe versus Wade or whatever. I'm just, this is just anecdotally what I hear from Democratic women. Um, Obama, for example, Senator Obama in 2007, he told Planned Parenthood, that, that he would, uh, the law called the Freedom of Choice Act, which would have codified Roe v. Wade, would be one of the first things he would do. That was 2007. Then in 2009, he was asked about it, and he said it wasn't his highest legislative priority. Take a listen. First thing I'd do as president is, is sign the Freedom of Choice Act. The Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. Do you hear from Democratic women who... who are sick of Democrats using this as a reason to get them to the polls and then ultimately don't codify Roe v. Wade? Yes, I do. And I felt it myself for a long time as an activist before and even as a member of Congress. But here's here's the thing. I think there was a complacency around Roe v. Wade. This was settled precedent, even though we knew that Republicans were planning this for 30 years, and yet we treated it as if it was settled and it couldn't happen, that it couldn't be overturned. And I think that that has been part of the problem. But I will say that what I also say to people, young people across this country, young women across this country who are frustrated um, by the lack of action is that we have to acknowledge, and I never tell people not to be frustrated. I'm frustrated too. We have to acknowledge that the system is broken. We have a filibuster in the Senate that requires a 60 vote majority to pass anything. And in the vacuum of the Senate acting, What is happening is this radical extremist Supreme Court is given latitude to act on a whole host of issues that otherwise would be codified by Congress. And so in order to change that, we cannot give up and we do have to get a real pro-choice majority in the Senate that will overturn the filibuster, eradicate it in my view, but at a minimum eliminate, uh, you know, carve, carve out an exception for these critical rights like Roe v. Wade, like uh, or like codifying Roe or voting rights or some of these other critical fundamental rights that are at stake. And if we give up, we know what the radical extremist Republican playbook is, not to mention stealing our democracy, overturning elections, but also taking away these fundamental precedents and rights that have been settled for so long. Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, thanks so much for your time. Good to see you. Coming up, she just talked to her son for the first time since he was captured by Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine. Alex Druki's mother joins us live next. In our world lead, at least 18 people are dead and more than 50 remain hospitalized after a Russian airstrike on a shopping mall in central Ukraine, according to officials. In Mykolaiv, the death toll at an apartment block has now risen to five 
after eight Russian missiles struck that complex earlier today. And today, the United Nations published an alarming new report about the toll that Russia's invasion has taken on civilians in Ukraine in the last four months. CNN's Phil Black is live for us in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. And Phil, we're getting new video of the moment of the strike. Yeah, Jake, video released by the Ukrainian government, geolocated by CNN, which shows a Russian cruise missile slamming into that shopping uh, center in Kremenchuk. In slow motion, you can see the missile clearly at any speed. You can see much of the shopping mall simply being blown apart. It goes some way to explaining why the Ukrainian officials there are saying that they need a few more days to go through the debris to clear it to ensure they have recovered all possible uh, victims. They said today they haven't even yet reached the point, the actual impact point where the missile detonated. 18 people confirmed dead so far. A number of body parts, 11 parts have been found. They don't know yet. They can't know yet how many bodies those parts uh, belong to. And still a list of missing people, around 20 people or so. Just a short time ago, Russian media reported that Vladimir Putin for the first time commented on this specific attack, saying there is no way that Russia could have been responsible for killing people in that mall because Russia, he says, does not target civilian objects, as he describes them. He has said that before, but we know through this war there has, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that Russian munitions hit civilian targets with some regularity. Again, just today in Mykolaiv, as you say, in the south there, eight missiles hit that city. Take a look at this video. One of them hit a five-story apartment building, blasting away the top two floors of that building. Rescue workers had to use large cranes uh, with cages attached to, to get up to the now exposed interior of that building to help the injured, the trapped, uh, escaped. We are told by the UK's defence intelligence in their most recent assessment that we should expect more strikes like this resulting in civilian, uh, t- civilian casualties like this because Russia is short on modern precision weapons, its target planners aren't very good at their job, and it says Russia is prepared to accept a very high number of civilian casualties when pursuing uh, military goals. Generally, it says Russia's behaviour is more likely to result in civilian deaths, and it is not likely to change that behaviour, Jay. Phil Black in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Elsewhere in Ukraine, two volunteer American fighters remain captives of Russian-backed separatists. The family of one of the Americans says the U.S. State Department has informed them that the captors are now willing to negotiate for their release. Joining us now is Bunny Drukey, the mother of Alex Drukey, one of the two Americans being held captive. Bunny, thanks so much for joining us. Good to see you again. I understand you were able to speak with Alex on the phone yesterday. Tell us about it. Yes, Jake, I was. He, uh, the connection was very poor, but I could hear him. I know it was him. It was wonderful. And we should point out Alex was uh, apparently reading from a script during your conversation. The State Department is characterizing the conversation with him as being under duress. He was under duress. With that said... Um, What was he able to tell you about how he's being treated, how he's doing? Well, I could tell when he was having to say something that they were telling him to say, which was that he's being held by the Donetsk People's Republic and that they are uh, wanting to negotiate. Um, He also said that they appeared to not understand how governments work so slowly. And so they were really pressing him to press me to try to get this word out. Um, He also said that he is, he has food and water. He has a place to sleep. Uh, He's in solitary confinement. And then his voice changed a little and he was able to ask how his dog was doing. Did I get his truck repaired? 
so you know it was I could tell a difference when he sounded relaxed to when he sounded like he was going by the script. And I know you're trying to get the International Committee of the Red Cross to to go to where he is uh, for an independent wellness check. Uh, what are you hearing about that? Uh, they are doing their best to get there. We especially wanted to check on Andy because um, Andy has not been able to call his fiance Joy. And uh, so we just want to, and Alex can't see him because they're being held in solitary confinement. So as you noted, Alex is being held by forces from the Donetsk People's Republic. That's a Russian-backed separatist group in Ukraine. You said the State Department told you that his captors are willing to negotiate for his release. What, what do you know about the potential of any deal or, or what they might want in exchange? They didn't say. They just are wanting to negotiate. And they seem to want it very badly. So um, it's a delicate position that all of these countries are in. And I understand that. And I want to thank President Zelensky for what he said about the boys being heroes and that he was going to do whatever it took to get them freed and back home. And uh, I just want to thank him again and again because he has a lot on his plate. And it just means a lot to me that he's taking a personal interest in this. Bonnie, Bonnie Drukey, it's, it's good to see you. It's good to talk to you. I'm so glad you got to talk to Alex. And as I have promised you every time, we're going to keep covering the story. So I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Could Trump's election lies cost Republican Senator Ron Johnson his Senate seat in November? Why he may be the most vulnerable Republican incumbent right now. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin is considered to be one of the most vulnerable incumbents facing re-election this year. The Republican lawmaker has struggled to keep his story straight about why his chief of staff reached out to then-Vice President Pence's office to deliver to them the names of a slate of fraudulent electors from Wisconsin and Michigan. CNN's Manu Raju takes a closer look now at what Johnson is up against in his fight to stay in the Senate. Ron Johnson has been on the ropes before. Twice Democrats thought he'd lose the Wisconsin Senate race. Twice he pulled it off. Yet now dogged by a series of controversies, including over January 6th, Johnson's slumping popularity has made him the most endangered GOP senator up this November. Aren't you just tired of all the anger and vision? God, I am. And with abortions now banned in Wisconsin, Democrats hope their voters take their fury to the polls. But they first have to work out a family feud. We ought to beat Ron Johnson in the fall, and I'm the only candidate that can do that. My campaign is the only campaign in the Democratic primary that's beating Ron Johnson with independent voters. I am a 72-county candidate. Our campaign is the real Wisconsin campaign. More than a third of Democratic voters undecided ahead of the August 9th primary. What's upended the race? The Supreme Court reverting Wisconsin back to an 1849 law that bans abortions. This is pre-Civil War. Sarah Godlewski, Wisconsin State Treasurer, faults her party for not codifying Roe. I have been frustrated that my own party has not prioritized this in trying to get this done, and we've had 50 years. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes revealing his mother needed an abortion before he was born. If she was forced to carry the term, that would have created all sorts of additional mental and physical health issues for her. I wouldn't be here today. While Democratic Governor Tony Evers has promised clemency for abortion providers, doctors fear they could still be at risk of being prosecuted in the future. We're afraid. None of the leading Democrats back restrictions on abortions. 
should there be any restrictions at all, including late in a, in a pregnancy? So I, I think that women should have the right to make their own health care decisions. Johnson has said little about how the law will impact his state, but said of the Supreme Court. It was the appropriate decision. Instead, campaigning on inflation while attacking President Biden's policies. That's the burden of Joe Biden's inflation tax on Wisconsin families. Some Democrats aren't even saying if the unpopular Biden should run again. Do you think he should run for a second term? The president needs to do what's best for him. Do you think that Joe Biden should run for president again? Well, I'm focused on this race right now. We still got to get past November 2022. The rhetoric sharp after the January 6th committee revealing an effort by Johnson to pass off fake electors to Vice President Mike Pence. That is treacherous and seditious. I call for Ron Johnson to resign. While Johnson downplayed the controversy last week. This is a complete non-story, guys. This week in Milwaukee, refusing to answer CNN's questions. Give you a quick second. Now, despite Ron Johnson's problems, a recent poll from Marquette University showed this to be a neck-and-neck race for whoever he faces among the four leading Democratic candidates come November. And already tens of millions of dollars have been spent on the airways. And also what could be a close race, the race for Wisconsin's governor, Tony Evers, facing re-election there, Jake. And the outcome of that could be determinative on how the state moves forward with that new abortion law. All right, Bonnie Raji, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Republicans should not look away. That's the message from one conservative outlet's editorial board. But is it enough to change any minds of Trump's many millions of supporters? Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. The January 6th House Select Committee's sixth public hearing left former Trump aides speechless. CNN's Gabby Orr and Pamela Brown report. One Trump advisor said, quote, for the first time since the hearing started, no one is dismissing this. Let's discuss. So Abby Phillip. Just to get you up to speed, I, uh, earlier in the show, I interviewed uh, Trump's former acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and I asked him about um, the description we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson about Mulvaney kind of like disengaged. Uh, they were trying to tell him stuff, trying to tell him about threats that were coming, et cetera, and he was just sitting on the couch scrolling. Here's part of what Mulvaney said in response. I was actually texting with a, a colleague of mine who was in the West Wing at the time, and I said, look, was, was Mark just completely incompetent or was he having a nervous breakdown? And the response was that it was a little bit of both. The West Wing was clearly broken, clearly broken. Uh, and the testimony yesterday actually made me feel bad for some of the good people who were still there to have to work in that environment with a chief of staff who was so obviously disengaged. In case you were not sure which of the guys with the last names that start with M who used to be White House Chief of Staff, that's the one who had the job before right. Mark Meadows. I'm just saying, so w- was Mark completely incompetent or was he having a nervous breakdown? The response is a little bit of both. <laughs> they, they have some, you know, bad blood, you know, like many people who were in this sort of doggy dog world of the Trump White House. But, but that being said, I, I do think that... Um, it is interesting that Mulvaney thinks that this is significant. It kind of goes along with what we are hearing from a lot of people in Trump world on Capitol Hill, the sources who spoke to Pamela and to Gabby Orr, who are basically saying, this ain't nothing. Yeah. And this, is, this is significant. And no, it's not just about the porcelain plates and the ketchup on no, the wall nothing. of the White House residence. It's about the part of this that is uh, Trump 
saying Trump being told multiple times that there were weapons in the crowd and not caring. It's about the part of this that is about Trump telling Mick Mulvaney, go over to the Willard Hotel and talk to the Mark guy. Meadows, I'm sorry, Mark Meadows, the other <laughs> yeah. the other guy. Mark, Mark Meadows, go to the Willard and talk to the, the people who are are basically organizing Stone the January 6th. What became an insurrection? There were so many other details that are just too hard to dismiss, and even people, Trump adjacent people, are taking notice. Uh, and, and, and Jonah, there's a blistering editorial in the in the Washington Examiner, which is generally conservative and pro-Trump. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say uh, it reads in part: Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson's Tuesday testimony ought to ring the death knell for former President Donald Trump's political career. Trump is unfit to be anywhere near power ever again. Trump is a disgrace. Republicans have far better options to lead the party in 2024. No one should think otherwise, much less support him ever again. Is is that significant, you think, that the Washington Examiner said that? I think it's a significant sign that nature is healing. (laughs) Um, uh, We are the virus. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, I I felt that way in 2015 and 2016, but everyone in the pool, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think it's significant. I think that you know, people want to talk about criminal referrals and criminal prosecutions and all of that. I think that there are so many thorny issues involved with that. The keeping sights on the fact of just making, uh, anathematizing him as a political force in the Republican Party would be a monumental victory by my lights. And I think that the, the issue now is, you know, people are trying to, they're attacking Cassidy Hutchinson. They're, they're raising some perfectly legitimate questions about her testimony. But the key thing is her testimony was under oath. And all of the people who are complaining, starting with Donald Trump, that the other side hasn't gotten a fair hearing, that's a fair criticism of the committee, although it was Republicans who didn't want to have a real committee. Um, the people who could rebut with facts yeah. are the ones pleading the fifth and defying subpoenas. Yep. And so the only way to actually engage this now is to get people under oath to say that's not true. And I don't know where those and people are. And by the are. way, also being paid by right. the, the Trump Trump world and people around Trump who are the subject of this committee. So I think that's an important part of it, too. What was your reaction to the hearing? Well, I mean, I just I, I, I guess my question is more to what you're just talking about with the Washington Examiner and all these people coming out and saying this about Donald Trump, because I think I have a little bit of your reaction was like you're just now coming to this conclusion. It just seems strange that this one. I mean, all the January 6th stuff happened on TV. So they were certainly clearly aware of this. They're aware of the fact that the president denied that the election was legitimate, that Joe Biden is president, all these things. It makes me wonder if they're doing this because they now think Donald Trump just can't win. Right. So it's is this more about the fact that they just think this tarnishes him so much that he needs to step aside for somebody else? Because I just don't understand how this would make it so much worse because we already knew all of this. Basically, she just, you know, she put flesh on the bones. Right. And like gave us a lot of behind the scenes information. But the high level information that there was an attack on the Capitol and that, be, that the president egged this attack on, and that the president continues to this day, ex-president, claims that the election wasn't real. Wasn't so, so Molly, what Mulvaney said was that he's been basically defending Trump because he didn't right. think Trump could, could incite, he could incite a, a violent insurrection. But, that, yeah. but that, hearing Cassidy Hutchinson say, that she heard Donald Trump say, you know, I know these guys are uh, armed, but they don't want to hurt me, and let's bring them down to the Capitol, that that was a light bulb for him. 
that was the breaking point. And so I do think that it's true that this was a breaking point for many people on the substance, even people who had stuck with Trump up to this point. And because Trump not only knew that the election was stolen and everything else, but, but knew that there was the potential for violence and, in fact, encouraged it uh, in the moment. But it also, I think, to, to Kirsten's point, it was, it's a breaking point in the incentive structure. Because you now have a lot of other Republican candidates who are hoping that they can be the nominee in 24. They would they're ready for Trump to be part of the past. You have a lot of Republican elected officials who wanted to put Trump in the past for a long time and are now seeing that they have an opportunity to do so. And, you know, so much of this feels like the Access Hollywood tape, which I believe was 35 years ago that that happened, <laughs> like in 2016. Uh, and, and we thought that was a breaking point. But the incentive structure in that case was for the party to rally around Trump so they could win the election. The incentive structure for everyone not named Donald Trump right now is to run as far away from him as possible in the moment that he looks weak and see if they can bury him once and for all. Now, can they? I don't know. He's certainly come back plenty of times before. One of the things that's interesting right now is on Twitter, uh, Alyssa Farah Griffin, who's a, a commentator here and former White House communications director, and Olivia Troy, who worked for Pence, um, they're out there talking about all the times that Tony Ornato, who is the former White House, Trump White House deputy, White House chief of staff, and also Secret Service agent, who she says told her the story about the incident in the limo, they're talking about all the times that he lied, in their view. Um, so this is going to, it's not as though all the allegations, all the people trying to take her down are necessarily don't have uh, questions to be asked themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also she, all she did was say that some, she heard this. She didn't say she saw it. Right. She said Someone so told her the story. This is the conversation that she heard. And so, and the other thing is, it's not really central to whether or not Donald Trump has, you know, did incite this mob to attack the Capitol. So I think it's a story that's certainly interesting, but you could take that story out and everything she said would still be powerful and yeah. everything that we know would still be incredibly I powerful. agree with that entirely. And in some ways, that's partly an argument for why the January 6th committee probably should have not gone down that path if they didn't have that part nailed down. Unless they're trying to bait Tony Renato to testify under oath. That's right. I mean, there are all sorts of theories swirling around that's mine. there. Yeah. And, <laughs> but it does go to a state of mind. And also, since everyone's talking about how this was only hearsay and all that, there are grades of hearsay. And this was her testifying under oath that this guy immediately after that event said these things, which is different than saying to her, as to her directly yeah. to her in front of the guy that told right. him. So let them yeah. let them come under oath. And, sure. And, and deny it. You know, but it, all I'm saying is that this this chums the water that the only way you're going to be able to rebut her in a meaningful way is actually get other people under oath. And as we know, there's no penalty for lying to the public. Right? And just, uh, just under oath. Yes. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Really appreciate it. President Harry Truman awarded him the Medal of Honor for his bravery during World War II. Next, we're going to say goodbye to an American hero. Stay with us. Internationally, the last World War II Medal of Honor recipient died today. Herschel Williams, known as Woody, was 98 years old. Woody Williams was a United States Marine. He fought heroically in the Battle of Iwo Jima. He single-handedly killed 21 enemy soldiers in four hours, according to the World War II Museum. On October 5, 1945, President Harry Truman awarded him the highest military honor. Williams also has a U.S. Navy warship named after him. He's a member of the West Virginia Hall of Fame. He died in the VA hospital that bears his name. His legacy, his fierce dedication to Gold Star families, lives on through the Woody Williams Foundation. He leaves behind two daughters and joins his wife, Ruby, who died in 2007. May his memory be a blessing.
You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you know what you can do? You can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. It's true. All two hours sitting right there. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.